Hey friends, Andy Jenkins. Welcome back to The Hilltop and to the podcast. I'm here in my office with the massive windows overlooking what is a very clear, not intending to give you the weather, just saying it's a great day. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. Today, I'm going to wrap up part number two of the Life Lift Framework. I've been getting this information all out of the workbook, which uh, I haven't really pushed it a whole lot, but you can grab that workbook absolutely free. If you pay the shipping and handling, we will mail it straight to you wherever you live. I was going to say anywhere on the planet, but I think it'll only work probably in the U.S. All right, so check it out. The link is in the show notes below. Uh, The workbook has all the answers in it. It's a great study for you to, here's the point of it, find and fulfill your purpose. Now, I got a question uh, on social media. It was maybe in the last week or two, um, because I'd kind of alluded to the fact that I was probably going to wind this down, because really, in part number three of the framework, I I don't think I'm going to teach you that via audio, uh, because I... I haven't really figured out how I would. It's a bit more visual because that's when you start stacking several ideas together. Uh, you start utilizing several of the assessments and you really begin finding and fulfilling your purpose. So everything I've given you so far is really foundational towards that uh, so that you can just really assess and look and see how you respond in certain situations. Uh, look back at your past experience, good and bad, Look back at the present circumstances, the burdens that you feel, the joys that you sense, uh, and start deciding where where God has supernaturally called you, gifted you, designed you. All of that all fits together. Um, But there is this issue. uh, We label it in the book as this, uh, instructional obedience. Now, I had never heard that term until my dad said it, instructional obedience. I remember it was a key component of the Life Lift material when he first penned it 25 years ago. Instructional obedience really means this. Uh, So many people want to jump off the deep end, go find out what they're supernaturally called to do, live out the grand design, God's big purpose for them. And they are, uh, to, to quote a Stephen Curtis Chapman song, Back from the 90s, they are, they are waiting for lightning, looking for some big sign of what they should do. And what they really need to begin with first is going back to the things that God has clearly already said are His design for them. That leads us to instructional obedience. There are things in Scripture it's not popular to talk about today. Uh, you know, I've even been in churches where they kind of poo on the Bible, right? And, and yet somehow want to extract the supernatural element of the resurrection, the forgiveness of sin out of that same Bible. It makes no sense to overlook the very simple and clear in your pursuit of the supernatural and honestly what's unclear. Uh, We won't be led astray in it, but we want to begin first with what God has already said clearly to do, trusting that that's going to provide a great foundation for us. It's going to provide some guardrails to keep us safe, to keep us moving forward. And as we steward that information, 
and steward our obedience and follow through there, he's going to do what he says in the scripture. You know, to, to the one who's faithful with little, I'll give more. And as we steward the little that we have, the simple that we have in scripture, that is crystal clear. He will continue giving us more because we have a, stir, a sturdy foundation, uh, because we can hear him clear. You know, if you, scripture was inspired by the Holy Spirit, if we want to hear the Spirit in prayer, read the scripture and you will learn what his voice sounds like. When that Spirit speaks to you, oh my goodness, it will be, ah, oh yeah, that's I, I recognize this voice. All right, so let's begin there. We're going to, this is lesson number 10 of the Life with Framework. And I think, uh, let me loop back. Obviously, I don't script the intro. <laughs> I just talk. Uh, what are you going to teach next? I think next week, uh, in the next episode, I'm going to start rolling out this series. I was looking back at some notes of uh, some items I put together in a video course uh, probably, oh goodness, it's probably been six, seven years ago, uh, and I, I want to pull it together. Uh, maybe Grace may talk about that. Uh, I might drive into some of the concepts we talked about just uh, making faith in Christianity very practical and simple. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, but for now, here's where we are, and uh, I invite you to take advantage of the free book down below, and then to grab hold hard of this lesson on uh, power love. Here we are with the self-control. That's the framework we've been on, power love, self-discipline. This one's all about the scripture uh, and about being um, sure that you're doing the things where God has already been clear, trusting that he will give you more clarity on more stuff as we begin there first. Here it is, all right? Power love self-discipline, sound mind, however you want to term it. Thanks for joining me. Now, in the previous few lessons, we've talked about living the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And we've said that God has not given us a spirit of fear. He's given us a spirit of the power of love and of a sound mind or power love and self-discipline. We're going to talk in this lesson about why that's important. That's going to lead us to this idea of instructional obedience that's really going to become essential when we get to part four of the framework. And also, we're going to highlight a few things right now that we actually know specifically are the will of God. Now, let me tell you why this is important. A lot of people really want to find, this is kind of my concept here, they really want to find God's specific will for their life. Am I designed to be a teacher? Should I be a writer? Should I be a, a builder? Should I be a, 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 a coach? Should I be a, you, you fill in the blank, should I work at a store? Should I create something? Should I draw something? Should I, should I assist someone else in doing something? Should I uh, get married, have kids, live in the inner city, live in the suburbs, live out in the country, live here? or there or go back to school. We, we, we often look for those specific details. What we're going to find here is that one of the essential things that we can do and should do is anchor down on the things that God has already specifically told us to do in Scripture. 
And when we begin there, it not only creates a very safe place, it gives us a sturdy foundation and it becomes a launching point to move forward to those specific details of your life. So that's where we're headed. Let me uh, show you my slides here and give you really the screen share. Lesson number 10, sound mind and discipline. Here's the, here's the main idea. In the same way that Jesus is the perfect expression of the Father, that was lesson number one, way back at the beginning, revealing him completely, Jesus is also the perfect expression of the written scripture as we mirror his image. That was lesson number two. So also do we express the black and white of the printed page in living color? So what we're saying right here. Jesus came to show us what God the Father was like. He also shows us how to live out the written text of Scripture. And as we mirror him, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to become, when I was growing up, people said, hey, you, you may be the only Bible that someone else reads. And, and I understand people can hijack that term and they can misuse it and all of that. And people can do just about anything unhealthy with just about anything. But but here's what it is. It's, it's actually what we're going to drive at is you and I, we want to endeavor to live out in a healthy way that models, again, all three of these, power and love, as we discussed in lesson number eight and lesson number nine, the power of the Holy Spirit, which comes with the presence. So we don't seek the power, we foster, we develop connection with the presence. As we do that, we grow in intimacy and love we do this all with the sound mind in alignment with the word of God. As we do that, you and I are going to, in a healthy way, live out the text. Now, this is not legalism. Let me, let me show you Psalms 138.2. You have magnified your word above all your name. What is all your name? Well, there are many names of God all throughout the Old Testament scripture. Even in the New Testament, we see all these names that he's the healer, that he's our warrior, our banner, that he's our provider, that he is uh, all of these different titles that somehow reveal a different facet of his character. And he has magnified his word above all of that. And so this shows us, it really punctuates the place of primacy that God himself places on scripture. In fact, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, a verse that you're going to recognize right here, Paul, uh, he inscribed this to Timothy. He said, all scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God, so that's me and you, so that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, Notably, I want to show you something here. John 14, 6, Jesus said, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. He will remind you of everything that I have said to you. And what I want to show you is that really the job description right there of the Holy Spirit and the job description of Scripture, teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, they're very similar to each other. The Holy Spirit right there teaches you everything, reminds you of everything that Jesus has said. The scripture itself, it teaches you, it rebukes you, corrects you, empowers you of everything that Jesus did and everything that Jesus said. Here's why. Because the Holy Spirit actually inspired. There's what it means right there. The scripture is inspired. It is God-breathed by the Spirit himself. These two are always going to be in alignment. 
I was at church about a year or two ago, uh, one that I don't attend this church regularly. And the pastor got up and he said something like, if, if somehow you're reading the scripture and you feel led to correct someone, you need to read the Holy Spirit instead. And I thought, man, you, you just kind of missed it. Now, for sure, if you're going to correct a brother or sister in Christ, the context of that needs to be love. People don't need to be afraid. They need to feel embraced when you approach them. And so you need to check your heart and get that in the right position as you do. And on, uh, always calling out the best, calling out uh, kind of the diamond that might be in the rough, hidden by some coal right there. But for sure, notice the job description, teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Why? so that you can be equipped to do the work that God has foreordained for you to do in his grace, as Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 taught us. Again, all of these important, power, love, and sound mind. We don't want to eliminate any of these. All of these are important. Now, in 2 Timothy 1, 7, that's where we got the verse. It's the bottom of the graphic. God has given you spirit, power of love, and a sound mind. Here's how we translate that power, love, and sound mind, just as we did this uh, in a previous lesson where we talked about perfect love, uh, and we talked about that term perfect, what it's like, and then cast out. We said that that word means banishes, expels, and we just kind of pulled together different translations. Power, love, and sound mind. Here's how different translations of scripture approach that. Some say God's given us a spirit of power, love, and sound mind. That's the New King James Version. Uh, the NIV, if you're reading that translation, power, love, and self-discipline. That, that's a good way to look at it. Uh, uh, the King James Version, power, love, and wise discretion. I, I like that. It brings maybe an air of honor to this. The English Standard Version, which is what I'm reading right now in the mornings, is power, love, and self-control. Uh, all of these give us a glimpse of what it really looks like that we're talking about in this lesson, number 10, where we start dialoguing about walking with a spirit, not just a power, walking with a spirit, not just of love, but also uh, adding that facet there of sound mind, of discipline. Here's, here's the first main idea. To build our life on the word, because that's what we're talking about. God's elevated his word above his name. To build our life on the word, we need to understand the full scope of what the word of God is. What is the word of God? Well, first of all, Jesus is the word, and Jesus does the word. Jesus is the word, and Jesus does the word. That's really important. The word all pointed to Jesus. The scripture all highlighted Jesus. There's a passage in Luke 24, 44, where Jesus says, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. Now, this is a passage we've seen several times in this entire workbook. We looked at this earlier when we were talking about the Holy Spirit, where Jesus appeared to them alive. And then uh, John says that he breathed the Holy Spirit on them. And Jesus says, um, or Luke says that Jesus said, hey, wait, wait, wait for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And we said, hey, those, those two things, they don't have to contradict. We can hold those intention here. These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the Psalms concerning me. This is what he taught the two on the road to Emmaus, okay? The scripture, the law of Moses, the prophets, they were all pointing to Jesus. It all points to Jesus. All the scripture points to Jesus. So the word points to Jesus, but also 
the word's not just about Jesus. The word is Jesus. Jesus is the word. First um, John uh, or John 1 14, first chapter of John, he writes, and the word became flesh and, and Jesus became flesh and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the father, full of grace, which is how often we want to read the scripture and truth. So again, bringing up that element of uh, all scripture is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for training in righteousness, all elements of it. So again, the word points to Jesus. Jesus is the word. Jesus also does the word. He lives out the expression of God's intention in the text. He says this in the Sermon on the Mount, do, do not think that I came to destroy the wall or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass away from the wall until all is fulfilled. Now, a jot and a tittle, those were the littlest strokes, the smallest strokes that they had inside of the Hebrew language of the Old Testament. So it would be like a little apostrophe or a, a little period. He says, hey, even the periods and the apostrophes, even that little, uh, all the small uh, jot and tittles, Everything in the text, not just the words, but even the punctuation. I came to fulfill all of that. That's how precise and how connected he was to all of scripture. So again, idea number one here in the first main idea, Jesus is the word. Jesus does the word. That leads me to this, the way, the truth, and the life. That's a phrase we often attribute to Jesus because he actually said it. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Let me, let me show you how they would have read that. The way, the truth, and the life is a phrase that they used in his day and age, in his culture, in that context, to refer to the law, to the Torah, to the books of Moses, to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They would refer to the Torah as the way, truth, and the life. But when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I don't think he's only making an argument for exclusivity as being the one way to God. Now, now we know that for sure he is the one way to God. Salvation found in no other name except by Jesus. We see that repeated throughout the scripture. No disagreement, nothing different there. But, but I want to show you a nuance. When he talks about being the way, the truth, and the life, again, people in his culture would have referred to the way, the truth, and the life as Torah, as the Old Testament as those first five books of Moses, which by the way, most of them in that culture by the age of 10, 11, 12, 13 would have had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. He's saying this, I came to show you how to live the text. I came to show you how to live Torah. And I came to show you how to do so, not just as a legalistic document. I came to show you how to do so in connection with the Father and in relationship with each other. Okay, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The way, the truth, and the life, again, it was not heard originally is an argument for exclusivity. That was already a given. You, you might remember the story of Peter when some of the disciples were bailing out on Jesus and Jesus looked at the 12 and said, hey, do you guys want to leave also? And Peter said, where else would we go? You have the words of life. You are life. 
this was a given that Jesus was the exclusive path. But again, Torah was referred to as the way, truth, and the life. And he's telling them, hey, I, I came to show you what it looks like. I came to show you how to live out the text so that you can do it in a meaningful, in a healthy, non-legalistic, but empowering and life-giving way. So, so here's what we've said. God exalts the word above his name right here. Jesus reveals the word and Jesus reveals the father's intentions for us. Here's idea number three. Jesus, the word should be both explained and experienced. Jesus, the word should be both explained. So we want to learn it in our heads, but we want to encounter it with our hearts. And I think he's better experienced than explained personally, but both of these they're important. We don't have to toss out one in order to embrace the other. As, as we saw that graphic uh, in the previous lesson, uh, we can merge together the both of those traditions, both that word and power tradition, both the word and spirit to become a fully developed disciple. So we don't have to negate one with the other. Jesus came and is best, again, both explained and experience. And that's what it looks like to be a fully developed disciple. Jesus told the uh, Pharisees one day, day this. He said, you come to the scriptures, you approach the written words, you approach the scrolls. If he was talking to us, he would say, hey, you, you pick up the Bible in the morning and you begin reading it because you think that in those words you have life. But all those words point to me. Oddly enough, and this is, again, him speaking to the Pharisees, but he could say this to us, right? Oddly enough, you refuse to come to me and enjoy true life. What's he getting at? He's driving at the idea that through the text, we want to encounter him. It all points to him. Okay, maybe just pulling together some of the ideas. Jesus is the perfect expression of the Father. That was what we learned in lesson number one, chapter one. Jesus is also this lesson, the perfect expression of the word, and the same spirit who conceived Jesus, the living word, in Mary's bosom, is the same spirit who inspired the written word. These two, as we've already said, these two fit together. Matthew 1.18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together physically, sexually, before they united as husband and wife, she was found with the child of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was birthed. He was um, sired, would be our word, with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Now notice this, the Holy Spirit whom the Father sends in his name will show you all the things and will remind you of everything that I've said to you. So we're putting all these layers together. All scripture is God-breathed. So how was Jesus born? Well, Mary was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. What is the Spirit going to do? The Spirit's going to teach us everything that Jesus says. So the internal witness that we have inside of us, what does the scripture do? It's God-breathed. The Holy Spirit does all of these. That means this, the Holy Spirit in you the Spirit's not going to lead you, not going to lead me to do anything in contradiction of what he's already shared in the written text. He's not going to instruct you in prayer to do something that defies what he's penned on parchment of a scroll thousands of years ago, or what he's penned in the text on paper with ink and typeset in a book. Again, all of these are important. Power, love, sound mind. 
several lessons ago, we talked about uh, if we eliminate power, we've we've done really the thing where we've only latched on to morality and behavior. And if we eliminate love, now, now this might be the ditch that we start to fall into if we start getting uh, just elevating the word only. But notice if we eliminate love, as we talked about in a previous lesson, we become legalistic, hyper-judgy. We push people away. We don't want to do that either. Here we're seeing we don't want to eliminate sound mind, though. We don't want to do power and love at the expense of self-discipline, at the expense of self-control, and be emotional and void of truth. Now, for sure, our emotions are given to us by God. All of that, everything we see right here is given to us by God, but we don't want to eliminate sound mind. We want to embrace and walk in the freedom that self-discipline will actually create. Here's another main idea for you. The second main idea of this lesson is to use the word to bulletproof your life and to protect what God wants to do through you. So scripture is really going to become a safeguard to bulletproof your life, to protect the call that God has on your life. Let me show you where I get that. In Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 17, Moses is talking about in the future when the children of Israel are going to want a king over them when they go into the promised land. And so Moses said this, one from among your brothers, you shall set as king over you. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive gold and silver. Now, now notice right there, there are three things that Moses highlighted that kings should not do. In other words, he was highlighting three things they needed to not do in order to bulletproof their life and protect the call, the position, the post that God had for them. And here's what he told them to do right in that same passage. He wanted them to write it on paper so that it becomes written in their heart. Write it on paper so that it becomes written in their heart. Notice the passage we just read was Deuteronomy 17, 15 through 17. Let's go to the next verse right here, Deuteronomy 17, 18 and 19. So when he sits on the throne of the kingdom, when the king sits on the throne, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him and he shall read it. Read what? His copy of the law. Not just read the scroll, read the one that he sat down and read. He shall read it all the days of his life. Why? That he may learn to fear. That's an awesome reverence. Fear the Lord as God by keeping all the words of the law and these statutes. He should do this, next verse, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left so that, again, bulletproofing his life, so that he may continue in the kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Again, all of this was done in order to protect the call, to bulletproof the life, to protect what God wanted to do. What was he supposed to do? Write it on paper so that it becomes written in his heart. Now, here's what I noticed. King Solomon, uh, the one that followed right after David. So you had the bad king, Saul, good king, great king, David. And then you had a king that started okay, 
but he didn't end real well. Solomon did the exact opposite of what was written in this text. What was in the text? Deuteronomy 17, 15. Don't acquire horses. Don't acquire a bunch of wives. Don't amass silver and gold. What did Solomon do? He was told not to acquire horses, yet he collected chariots. 2 Chronicles 9, 25. He was told not to pursue relationship with multiple women, yet Solomon amassed 700 wives and 300 concubines, according to 1 Kings 11, 1. And predictably, what happened is his heart shifted away to the foreign gods, to the gods of those wives. He was told not to hoard silver or gold, yet the scripture says in 1 Kings 10, 27, that he made silver and gold as plentiful as the pebbles, as plentiful as the stones that were on the road. And all of this caused him to shift. Watchman Nee, he writes this, to confirm whether or not we are moved by and walk in the Holy Spirit, we must see if any given thing harmonizes with the teaching of the Bible. See, the reality is, as he was doing all those things, Solomon probably felt good about it. As you and I walk away from congruence with what the Holy Spirit has said for us to do, there are going to be times where we could be deceived, where we could just feel, sense something. Yet here, again, to confirm whether or not we're moved by and walk in the Holy Spirit, we must see if any given thing harmonizes with the teaching of the Bible. Why? Where did the Bible come from? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wrote the text as an objective signpost, as an objective plumb line, as a guide force. The Holy Spirit never moves the prophets of old to write in one way and then moves us today in another way, in another direction. It's categorically impossible. Why? Because the Holy Spirit would then be contradicting the Holy Spirit himself. What we receive in the Spirit's intuition. He's talking about prayer. What we receive in our spirit there, it needs to be certified by the teaching of God's word. Here's another concept, and here's why I really believe this is hyper important. The enemy may very likely attack you, not at the point of your weakness, but the enemy may attack you at the point of your greatest potential. Here's the reality. The Lord supernaturally gifts us so that we can outperform what we're able to do in our own strength. That's the purpose we're going to see of the supernatural gifts. That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit moving inside of you. That's the purpose of the fullness of God dwelling inside of Jesus and now the fullness of Jesus living inside of you. That's the purpose of everything that he does for us. The Lord supernaturally gives us so that we can outperform what we're able to do in our own strength. He wants to do immeasurably more than we can ask, think, or imagine, as Paul proposes in Ephesians 3, 19 through 20. At the same time, grace sticks almost exclusively to our weakness. According to 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 11, it's when we're weak that he is strong and therefore we become strong, but that's when we're reminded that it's him, that it's his gifts, his power, his purpose originated by his presence in our life. That's why and how all of this occurs. You think about the example of Solomon and think, well, how and where and when did Solomon get off track? Well, Solomon had this radical wisdom you think, well, where did Solomon get the wisdom? Well, God gave him 
the wisdom? How was Solomon able to acquire houses and horses and make all these trades and amass silver and gold and make these political alliances with all of these women? Well, it was because he was wise. He was supernaturally wise. How did Solomon become supernaturally wise? Because he asked God for the wisdom and God granted him the wisdom that could be used in a helpful way and bring healing to a lot of people, or it could be used in a harmful way and bring hurt. And Solomon, rather than leaning into the first, the helpful way, he leaned into the second and he used it in a harmful way. And this is why we want to start right here. Write it on paper so it becomes written in your heart and don't let the enemy attack you at your point of greatest potential. Everything, again, main point B, is used from the word to bulletproof your life and to protect what God wants to do through you. You see, power, love, and sound mind. If we just do power and sound mind and don't have love, it's legalism. If we do love and sell mind, but don't have power, it's just morality. Like we looked at in lesson number eight, right here, if we have power and love, but we don't have the sale mind, it becomes very flimsy. And what we want to do is we want to actually integrate. We want to walk in all three of these. That is the sweet spot when they all fit together. Let me give you another main point. This one is really kind of where we'll start tying up this lesson. The will of God for your life, it begins in a very concrete way. Now, I remember growing up in the church and the will of God back in the late 80s, early 90s, that was this big catchphrase. People were talking about the will of God and, and, and what's God's will for my life. And uh, that was a phrase that we used over and over and asked questions about what's God's will for my life. If we get into the scripture, the scripture highlights at least five areas where that specific phrase, the will of God, is used. First of all, it is God's will that you and every other person are saved. That is awakened to everything that Jesus has achieved for you. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who, notice right here, desires all people to be saved, not some, all people all people to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. That's 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4. 2 Peter 3, 9, another passage, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. A lot of people thought that the second coming was delaying. They thought this 2,000 years ago. You can imagine what they would think if they were around now. And Peter says, no, no, no. God is not slack to fulfill his promise to return and to get, get us. As slow as that seems. He's not lingering just to wait, but he's being patient not wishing that anyone would perish, but he's giving others a chance towards repentance, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It is, first of all, God's will that everyone is saved. The second thing that is God's will, and again, we get these right out of the scripture, right out of uh, the stack post of the plumb line of the word of God, it is God's will that everyone is sanctified. Sanctification is not just being saved, it is walking out, living the full measure of that salvation, living the radiant expression of the holiness that you've been given at salvation. Now, the scripture uses that word too, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 4, this is the will of God, your sanctification, and then Paul goes on to describe it, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body, how in holiness 
and in honor, not just in legalism, not just in holiness, but also in this honor, in this loving, careful way. He's merging these ideas right here, holiness and honor together. Another verse, 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. What's he talking about? He's looking towards the future, looking, I think, right there towards the second coming. And then he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So he's suggesting don't walk out in the pre-resurrection version of yourself, the pre-salvation version. Live that resurrected life that we talked about in lesson number four. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Again, God's will is for you to be saved. God's will is for you to also be sanctified. Number three, it's God's will for you to be spirit-filled, as we discussed in lesson number eight. Whether you use this term or that term or some other term, it's to be spirit-filled, that is, hungering for the Lord's presence, longing for his constant connection. Here's the verse, Ephesians 5, 17 and 18 says, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now notice right here, all of these passages are using right there something related to that phrase, the will of the Lord. Understand the will of the Lord. What's the will of the Lord? Not to get drunk with wine. <laughs> That's debauchery. Now remember at Pentecost, everybody thought in Acts chapter 2 that the disciples initially were drunk with wine, and Peter stood up. He goes, no, 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 it's 9 a.m. This is not alcohol. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine. That's debauchery. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's God's will. I love this quote from Billy Graham in his book, The Holy Spirit. The command to be filled with the Holy Spirit actually has the idea of continuously being filled in the original Greek language, which Paul used. We're not filled once for all, like a bucket. You just kind of fill it up. It's full. It's done. Instead, we are to be filled constantly. It might be translated better as be filled and keep on being filled or be being filled. It is this connection. It is this experience. It is this ongoing relational. That's a key word right there, relational encounter. So God's will for you, again, the will of God for your life begins in a concrete way. We see it, number one, that you're saved. Number two, that you're sanctified. Number three, that you're spirit-filled. Number four, here's the next idea, that you are submissive. That is that you're living from a position of honor, uh, from a place of humility, that grace is always the right response that in all situations, you are submissive. Let me show you the difference right here. This comes from a book by John Bevere, uh, Undercover. He writes the differences here. Submission is an attitude. Obedience is an action. Now, he says we can always submit. We can always have the right attitude, even if we can't always obey, if we can't always have the correct action. And again, Scripture is calling us, commanding us to be submissive. A lot of people pull these together and conflate these by making them the same. They are two different things. You are not called to always be obedient. You are called to always have the right attitude of submission. Let, let me show you. The Bible teaches unconditional submission to authorities. 
but the Bible does not teach unconditional obedience. Remember, submission deals with the attitude, and obedience deals with the fulfillment of what we are told. He continues, the only time, and I want to emphasize, the only exception in which we are not to obey the authorities is when they tell us to do something that directly contradicts what God has stated in his word. Now, now that makes sense, because we want to do what the word says. And so if they tell us to do something that's not in alignment with the word, we don't want to do it. If they do tell us to do something that is in alignment with the word, well, hey, we want to honor them and walk through by doing what the scripture says, because our propensity is to obey the scripture. In other words, he continues, we are released from obedience only when the leaders tell us to sin. However, even in those cases, we're to keep a humble and submitted attitude. So you can't always obey, but you can always submit in your heart. You can always have the right attitude. This is why Peter says, be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God. What is the will of God? That you're subject, that you're submissive, that you honor Interestingly enough, the emperor that he's talking about in this instance is the emperor that beheaded Jesus's brother, James. You can't always obey, but you can submit. Um, there are examples of submissive disobedience throughout the scripture. For instance, Daniel refused to obey the king's edict and to not pray to anyone except for the king. But when Daniel did that, he disobeyed in a gracious way. He disobeyed with an attitude of submission. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to bow to the bronze statue of the king in Daniel 3, but they did so honorably. They still got tossed in the fiery furnace, but they did so in a humble way. Uh, the apostles, they refused to cease preaching the gospel, and the governing authorities asked them to stop preaching. That's in Acts 4, 18 through 20, and in other places throughout that book. Uh, yet they begged even then and prayed for their accusers and their jailers to be saved. And the scripture says, as a result of that, many of the priests actually converted and turned to the faith. Many of the jailers actually converted. Why? Because of the attitude of submission. This is where we read in Ephesians 5, where Paul says that husbands and wives should submit to one another out of mutual respect, mutual reverence right there. Again, submission is God's will. Okay, five things. Number one, that you're saved. Number two, you're sanctified. Number three, spirit-filled. Number four, an attitude of submission. Number five, the final one, is that you're serving. Now, this is where we're starting to wrap up part number two of the framework. Remember, part number one was we want to understand our identity. We want to understand who we are in Christ. Part number two is we want to live out the presence and practice the presence of God, walk in connection with the Holy Spirit. We're starting to see right here, we're going to shift in part number three and really begin dialoguing about expressing the gifts the Holy Spirit places inside of you. Why? Because right here, serving, it is a natural overflow expressing the very life that Christ places inside of you or the fullness of God is inside of you, or in the same way the Father sends him, the Father, as we've seen, sends you. Uh, here's what's interesting, overview of Romans, and we'll come back to the book of Romans in several lessons and highlight maybe a different facet of this. In Romans, we see Romans 1, God revealed himself through creation. So people 
all around the world are without excuse because they can look out. Now, we still share the message of grace with them, but they can look out and they can see something bigger is happening. There is a creator. We then learn that true faith isn't just outward, just raw obedience. It's inward. There's a change, a transformation that begins happening in us. In Romans 3, we learn that lesson that we picked up in lesson number six here uh, of the workbook that everyone has sinned, but we're all destined for glory. That was God's original intention, and that is what he has redeemed. This happens, according to Romans 4, not by faith, uh, or not by works, rather. It happens by faith, and now we're remade in the image of Christ to live out that faith. We're alive in Christ. We're chained to righteousness instead of sin in Romans 6. We have the ability now to pursue uh, God's best because he has put something inside of us, his spirit that is going to empower that. We now live by the spirit, not the flesh, according to Romans 8. And God has grafted us into the story of Abraham's faith and Abraham's radical blessing, according to Romans 9, 10, and 11. In Romans 12, Paul says that our response to all of this, our response to this overview of what God has done is this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in light of the mercies of God, what are the mercies of God? The mercies of God are all of these things that Paul has quoted out to us in Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. I appeal to you, based on the mercy you've received to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, which is the overflow of the Holy Spirit living through you. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So it starts right here with what we believe. Again, back to identity, with making sure that the things in your head, that the belief system is right. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing, that is, by walking it out, by experience, you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Okay, what is the will of God? Right here, to present yourself as a living sacrifice, to present yourself to your heavenly Father and say, here am I, to quote in the Old Testament, here am I, send me. God's will is that you're safe, you're awakened to everything Jesus has achieved for you, that you're sanctified, that you live out the radiant expression of the holiness that you and I have been given, that you're spirit-filled, that you're hungering for the Lord's presence, his constant connection, that you're submissive, that you live from a position of honor and humility, because grace is always the right response. Even when you can't follow through and obey what someone has told you to do, you can always live with an attitude of submission, of honor, of humility, and that while you do so, that you and I, that we serve others, that we express the very life of Christ, the very heartbeat of God the Father inside of us, overflowing to the world around us. And do you remember the outline that we had? Power, love, sound mind, lesson eight, lesson nine, Right here, lesson 10, we linked all these together back in lesson number seven. If we just walk without the power, it is an issue of just behavior only. We are living as very moral people. That's not bad, but it's just, it's just very limited to what we've been called to. If we eliminate love, it's just a result 
of people feeling pushed away rather than pulled in close. People don't feel safe. It's legalistic. It's it's hyper judgy. If we don't get it all right, it just doesn't match up to what God's called us to do. But when we pull all these together, when we pull together power, love, sound mind, it becomes this very authentic expression of what you and I have been destined for. It becomes this very life-giving spot of the call for which we were intended. Now, we finished part number one. We finished part number two right here of the framework. In the next part, in part number three, which will begin with lesson number 11, we're going to begin dialoguing uh, not about presence. That was part number two, uh, not about identity. That was part number one. But we're finally going to get to that area of expression, of living out the uh, empowerment of the Holy Spirit in your life. And you're going to see that the Lord does that in a very unique way, that he has created you to look, to sense, to feel, to express the Holy Spirit in a very different way than everyone else. And as we drive deep there, we're going to begin learning all about the supernatural gifts. And I'm going to tell you this, give you kind of a fair warning. The word that we typically use, spiritual gift, it doesn't actually appear in scripture, but what we're going to see is something far more robust, something far more all-encompassing, something far more beautiful. I'll see you in Lesson 11. All right, so I'm back. Obviously, there is not going to be a Lesson 11 here on the podcast uh, because, as I said, I really don't know how I would do that via audio. I would encourage if you want to dive deeper, take advantage of the free uh, book that is down in the show notes. Uh, grapple with that. We will ship it to you if you pay the shipping and handling. It will make sure that gets to you. Also, you got the opportunity to learn from some of the videos uh, that it will unlock for you there as well. I'll be back uh, next week with a new topic, uh, something that really still fits with this idea of grace, of freedom, of uh, walking in your purpose as we've been discussing for the past, oh, 10 weeks, and finally also of empowerment. Those are the topics that we cover here, grace, freedom, purpose, and empowerment. I'm Andy Jenkins. Again, take advantage of the free book below. Uh, let me do this. I, I haven't done this in probably six, seven episodes. Uh, because I haven't come back for an outro. But my prayer for you this week is the Lord would bless you, that he would keep you, he'd be gracious to you, he would shine his face of intense, radical, radiating favor on every place you walk. May the path that you walk be blessed. May the work of your hands be blessed. May you see the purpose for which you were created. May you find it, and then may you, in your days right now, fulfill it. Grace and peace. I'll see you again soon.